From the Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to a special bonus episode of The Close-Up. Each week we present in-depth conversations with some of the biggest names in filmmaking. It's August 7th, 2015. I'm Michael Lodemark, one of the show's producers. Today you'll hear a conversation with director Whit Stillman, who joined several cast members to discuss his 90s indie classic, Metropolitan. The 25th anniversary restoration of the film opens today, here at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. I'm not going to forget about him because of some apparent inconsistency. I've had a crush on Serena with some ups and downs for over two years. Serena had an incredible number of boyfriends, at least 20. Rip finds Monica and Serena Slocum still together. Well, one thing's for certain. She's lost her virginity by now. How can you say that? You're right. Maybe she wasn't a virgin. Metropolitan follows a group of college-aged UHBs, or urban hot bourgeoisie, home for winter break in Manhattan during debutante season. Calling themselves the Sally Fowler Rat Pack, the Upper East Side preppies welcome a middle-class Westsider named Tom into the group. The introspective Audrey quickly falls for Tom, who still has feelings for his ex, Serena, as the whole group struggles with what the future has in store for them. Metropolitan was a critical favorite at the 1990 New Directors New Films Festival, which is co-presented every year by the Film Society of Lincoln Center and the Museum of Modern Art. Upon its initial release, Roger Ebert wrote, Whit Stillman has made a film Scott Fitzgerald might have been comfortable with, a film about people covering their own insecurities with a facade of social ease. Andy has written wonderful dialogue, words in which the characters discuss ideas and feelings instead of simply marching through plot points as most Hollywood characters do. Recently, Whit Stillman stopped by the Film Society to discuss Metropolitan along with cast members Taylor Nichols, Isabel Gillies, and Dylan Hundley. The discussion was led by Nicholas Kemp of the Film Society of Lincoln Center. The 25th anniversary of Metropolitan opens here today, August 7th, with Whit Stillman and cast in person for Q&As this weekend. So let's go now to the discussion. All right. Well, we're very excited to have you guys here at the Film Society of Lincoln Center, where we'll be um, showing the 25th anniversary of Witzelman's Metropolitan and New Restoration from Rialto Pictures. Um, thank you for coming. And uh, it'd be great if you guys could just say your names and the character you played in the film. Thanks for having us. Uh, my name's Taylor Nichols, and I played Charlie in Metropolitan. Charlie 25 years ago. <laughs> 25. And I am Isabel Gillies, and I played Cynthia. I'm Dylan Hundley, and I played Sally Fowler. And Whit will be joining us soon. Um, but before he does, I want to start by immediately going back 25, 25 odd years to the time when you guys were all together shooting the film. Um, particularly, I think the group apartment scenes, which are so memorable. Um, I'm curious when you look back, what you remember about that time and, and working together. <laughs> Lots of things. <laughs> waiting. <laughs> waiting? Being in tux and sitting around waiting. It was late. It was always, we shot the bulk of the film at night because the brownstone that we were using was an office during the day. So we could only have it at night. So we would go in at 6 in the afternoon and work till 6 a.m. Yeah. And it was, I mean, it was vampire hours. We, yeah. we ate lunch at, at midnight at this little um, place called Superg, which is now closed. But that was pretty great, actually. Yeah, we had cheeseburgers at, at midnight. Yep. It was kind of crazy. And the first night's fun when you do that, but the third or the fourth or the fifth, 
is like, oh my God. <laughs> no, it really was very, very zombie like. I yeah. mean, and, and it just turned into this very, you know, uh, self contained world. But well, I think a, a, as a result of that, though, we all became pretty, pretty close at the time. You know, no one had cell phones. And right. so we, no one was like playing games or, you know, talking on their cell phone all the time. We just kind of hung out together. There was crossword puzzles. People, yeah. Allison did crossword puzzles constantly. Yeah. And probably you did too, Taylor. A lot of smoking. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, it's interesting you said contained. And at the end of the film, the character Audrey says something along the lines of the whole Rat Pack thing was getting claustrophobic. Was that ever true on set? Or what was the dynamic like? No. I, I never felt that I didn't, way. I didn't either, yeah. I mean... Because, I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, this was an independent film, right? So we did shoot it in 30 days. I don't remember the exact day count, but, I mean, it was a very intense 30 days. Yeah. As it is on any independent film, right? But, um, yeah, no, we weren't sick of each other. No, and it was uh, also, I mean, I, I had never done a film. A lot of, of the cast had never done a film. And right. so we were learning a lot. So it didn't feel, it, it fe every day it felt sort of like, oh, you know, you know even just learning about, that I remember the first couple of days I was trying to help the grips and the gaffers with move <laughs> things. The and they were like, no, dude, this is my job. <laughs> you do your job, I'll do mine. I was like, oh, sorry. It looked heavy. Yeah. No, but it's, I think it was everybody's first film. Yeah, yeah, it was it my was. first film. So we all learned how, we all learned how to make a film. And I read that uh, you guys mostly came in through a casting call. Is that right? It was, uh, uh, no. There was a there was a casting and backstage. Right, yeah. that that's what I did. I went to a big casting call, uh, just hundreds of people, and I I almost left a couple of times. There was so many so many people. I thought this is crazy. I'm not gonna, you know, wait in line any longer. And uh, uh, we we went in in groups of ten because there were so many people. And Whit, the director, kind of went, asked each person a couple of questions and got a little feel for them. And based on that, he then called people back to you know, read the script and work on the characters. And uh, did you have any idea what you were getting into when, when you were going through this process? What did you expect? What did you think this was going to be? Mine was different, though, too. Cause I, uh, I didn't go to the casting call. I was introduced. There was a guy named Bear Jones who had gone to college, had gone to Harvard with Wit, and I knew him, and I just had started acting, he introduced me to Wit and said, you know, you need to meet this guy he, that I went to, to college with, he's making a movie. And, um, yeah. I remember the script, and, and, and I'd never seen a script, but I, I, I was reading it, and I'd just gotten out of high school. Right. And I was like, you know, this, this doesn't feel like a porno. <laughs> like, <laughs> something feels sort of legit about this. And then I, I gave it to my father and said, what do you think about this? He said, you know... <laughs> crazy but it it's good writing yeah. he said you should give it a whirl you know do it well and isabel i like the story that you told me earlier that i i didn't know about at the time that you were it was a toss-up between either doing metropolitan or going to photography to, school oh no i was i was in college and i was and i auditioned for uh wit had somehow knew, had they went looking for girls like they us. went looking right. for <laughs> in the high schools and there the director in high school said well there's one girl but she already went to college and so said come down and audition and it was like way before cell phones and right. like fax machines and it was hard to get down you know so I auditioned and then I was like you know I got into this uh, photography class so I don't think I can do it and it was like I think you should do it and I was like really because it's what is it it doesn't seem right. like anything. Yeah. What's know. it pay? What's it pay? Well, like, it didn't seem... The independent film was uh, not a thing. It really we wasn't. That it, we, didn't yeah. know, we didn't think it was going to amount to... 
Well, and Sundance, <laughs> Sundance Film Festival, I think it was in its first year when, or second year. Yeah, I think second year, because I think uh, uh, Sex, Lies, and Videotape right. was kind of the hit of the year previous That's to, right. to Metropolitan. And that was the first breakout indie, yeah. right? And we were, we were the second. Yeah. Really. So there was that, no but. such thing. Now we were just talking... Uh, on the on the street about that you know now all these kids are making films on their phones and you know putting it up on the internet and it's sort of like what you do but the, making a movie back you know it was films real film it yeah it was, was shot on 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 16, 16. Mm -hmm. John Thomas was the DP and he was really really wonderful really he went brilliant. on to do Sex in the City right and mm -hmm. all those so I think we shot on Super 16 Super so 16 stretch it to 35 that's right that oh yeah yeah it was it was a different a different time, which is something you say yeah. at the 25th anniversary. <laughs> yeah. So was it at Sundance, or was there a moment when you sort of dawned on you that this was not this Absolutely. was going to be something a lot more than you initially expected? I think I was the only cast member that went to Sundance, and it ex and it was like overnight. <laughs> and there was we were at Sundance, and while at Sundance, an article came out in the New York Times that was very favorable. And from there, yeah. it was just like... I think that was the picture of the three of that us was on the, the couch. Yeah. It was. And, and that's, and it my father was like, uh, mm. hey, you're, you're in the New York Times. Like, we yeah. didn't even know that yeah. we were, in, you know. And, and we were so, I don't, I was just we thinking, we were sure. so yeah. young, you know. We were so young, we didn't even get it. I was like, oh, cool, New York Times, that's good, rock on, you know. Which, when have I been in it since? <laughs> <laughs> I, oh, I have a funny true. story. Wow. I was, I was... <laughs> I was on tour with um, Sugar Babies, and we were out west somewhere, uh, and someone called me up, and again, this was before cell phones, and it was hard to reach me. I was, uh, three or four of us from the cast were staying together in a, in a little house, and uh, I'd been out on tour for six months, I guess, and someone called me and said, Taylor, your, your picture's in the, on the cover of the Arts and Leisure section of the New York Times, and I said, why? <laughs> wow. And they said, because this film that you did was in the Sundance Film Festival. And it's been getting some some attention. I mean, we would make jokes, right? And so we would say, oh, right, when we go to Kong. Yeah. Oh, right, when we go to the Oscars. Oh, sure. <laughs> and you were saying just before that, that your parents actually saw the film at, at Cannes. So. Yeah, my, my mother and father were, were traveling in Europe when the movie was at the Cannes Film Festival, and they altered their, their trip and came down to Cannes and, and saw the movie there. And so um, now... You know, some time has passed, and I'm wondering, well, I asked you this before, but I'd love it if you could, when you saw the film recently, or if you've seen it recently, what is it like to look back at it now, 25 years later? I, well, I think it's, it's, what touched me, I think, because I'm a parent now, is, is what a coming-of-age movie it was, and I didn't understand that when I was 25 years ago. I just didn't, you know, you don't feel it in the same way. It's really just such a beautiful movie about growing, um, and that I, that's what really struck me. And I thought that, you know, this terrible thing to say, but it held up. I think it's sort of timeless in, in yeah, that Yeah, I think way. so too in that sense, yeah. That's interesting. It's very objective. Because I, I, I watch it and I time travel, right? And I don't watch it. It's just, you know, because it's hard to watch because we've only seen it 30 times. <laughs> you know, I've right? not. I, I have I, not. I saw it when it, it first opened. Yeah. Or, it showed, or it showed to my son as well. Yeah, I just kind of go back yeah. and I'm, I don't know. Just amazed that it's 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 and grateful that it stayed alive for so long. And is it strange at all seeing yourself or having yourself sort of um, captured or, or frozen in time like that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. As simple as that. Um, 
to to flip things around for a minute, um, there's this part of the film that uh, I kind of notice every time I watch it, where Audrey and Tom are talking about Jane Austen, and Tom dismisses her her work as he says something like it's ridiculous looked at from today's perspective, and then Audrey turns around and says something like. Well, has it ever occurred to you that if Jane Austen looked at today, she'd find it just as ridiculous or more? And I'm sort of curious what you think that your characters might think of today, if they could like, catch a glimpse of, of today, of you, of the world, of anything, what, what that would... Oh. Let's, let's they go ahead think and it was this. so yeah. tacky. <laughs> <laughs> I think, honest to God, I think the, thing, the big thing that's changed is... is the, like the iPhone. I, I mean, I think that movie wouldn't even happen because no one would talk as much. Right. You know, it, there's so much discussion and 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 hashing out, you know, subjects. And it, even that discussion about Jane Austen just wouldn't really, because they'd be like, well, let's Google it. And oh, see. Yeah. You know, it just, sure. it's like that really has changed, I think, the way people socialize. And I'm not sure that it would be the same. Absolutely. I don't, I'm not sure that that level of conversation occurs as much as it... I don't think it ever did. I think it's just in 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 With which mind. Yeah. <laughs> I disagree profoundly. <laughs> I think it always existed and still does. Google or not, Google just gives us more information to talk about. Yeah. Briefly. At length or, or briefly or whatever. Different strokes for different folks. Um, so thanks for being here. We we just a couple questions in, so you really haven't missed much, but. Um, one of the questions I asked these three was about um, uh, going into it, like expectations, and then how things changed when the film premiered at Sundance and started to garner this acclaim. And I was wondering if you could also comment on that, uh, on what you expected and how it may have exceeded your expectations or not. No, it didn't exceed my expectations. I thought it was going to be like Gone with the Wind. It would just make <laughs> millions. But um, we stopped short of that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think you did, but t truthfully, I think you had a lot of confidence in the film the whole time. Yes. So we talked a bit about um, the the kind of the dynamic when you guys were filming together, and now that you're here, I'd like to go into that a little more. I'd like to talk about, obviously, language is so important in the film, so I'm wondering what your process was for, for working with the actors on the dialogue and you know whether you had the time or the ability to rehearse a lot or if it was very... Well, it seemed to me they were really good, and a lot of it is just the audition, and they did really well in the auditions, and we just sort of wanted the same thing. I think we had one read through of the script in, in the downtown loft. Yeah, in your yeah. apartment. Yeah, sure. But essentially, they were right on the beam. Um, hmm. Yeah, and yeah, there wasn't. There wasn't a lot of uh, direction. There wasn't a lot of angst on set Not for at all. performance. I mean, every so often, you know, you would make a suggestion. I, I <laughs> sort of feel like what I think is so successful about the film is that your vision was so clear and so there was from everything from the color of the sofa to the cocktail you were drinking to what you were saying was mm -hmm. so in your mind that it was you were really a, a, a compass that we just sort of did what you said. <laughs> I mean I think that they were young very natural performers and um, so occasionally there'd be a few takes just to get up to like everyone in the same place. Um, and I think we were really helped by the fact that we had a hero location. We had um, access to the Alan J. Lerner mansion on East 71st Street, 
which had delightful details like an elevator, which we weren't allowed to use, which had um, paintings of around the world in 80 days and things from his shows. And the foundation was there. And they were working during the day and we were allowed to use it at night. But we were there for almost two weeks and um, it was just a terrific place to hang out and work together. And the um, producer used the machines, office machines downstairs. So it was like a mini studio at night and then we had to clear out before they all came to work. You mentioned the importance of the casting process and we did talk about that a little. Did you kind of know immediately when you saw different people that they, they got the language, they got this vision that you had and that they were the right person? Was the ideal uh, age group to, to cast in New York because there are a lot of aspiring actors in the right age group for the film. And I think the first open call, 300 people showed up. Taylor came in the second, which had almost like 150, 160 people. And these two girls we talent searched. Um, both of them, Isabel and Dylan, they're sort of a talent hunt in um, Manhattan to try to find you know, good actresses who are around here the right age. And they were the two who we found. And um, talking a bit more about the process, I'm curious about how you guys work together to develop um, the characters and particularly all the different relationships. There's this real intricate set of relationships between them and um, how you worked on those, not only the group scenes, but the various pairs and trios and other groupings that there were. From my perspective, um, I'm sort of going to reiterate what Witt just said, but he he cast us yeah. perfectly. And so the amount of, it was very effortless from my point of view. We sort of arrived and... You know. Yeah, I, I think a lot of that came from us being in that set all night long, like yeah. we were talking earlier, yeah. sort of hanging out together, you know, waiting for John to set the, the lights. We would all hang out and talk and run our lines and run our scenes and yeah. kind of play actor games a little bit. And I think that that fed right into the work on, on camera. Yeah, the bonding that occurs. There's sort of a third <laughs> floor area where the actors could hang out. Yeah. And, yeah. And I think they had to catch up on sleep, too. And we uh, did. Uh, <laughs> a lot of them were working during the day and uh, being run ragged by our shoot. And what, what's it like looking back at this film now, to, um, 25 years later, um, with this restoration and re-release coming out? Um, are there things that when you see it, you're, you love more, or you, is there any particular reaction you have revisiting it? Well, um, I mean, when you were talking before about n knowing whether it would be successful or not, or how it would turn out, I mean, it's very hopeful that so artistically it'd be successful, but there was a long um, period of, of struggle before we really got people behind it and wanting to buy it and wanting to distribute it. And um, it was actually <clears throat> your film society with um, Museum of Modern Art that puts on the New Director series. Mm -hmm. And it was the New Director series which really made us, because yes, it had gone well in Sundance, but we still hadn't gotten distribution. And it was a fight to get into new directors. I remember um, Larry Kardish telling me it was like a really split committee. And it had been a fight getting into Sundance. We'd initially been rejected. And um, they, they finally took us for new directors. And um, my best friend and I, he was also an investor. We both invested in the film. We went to the press screening um, for new directors. And I was behind Kathleen Carroll from the Daily News. He was behind Vincent Canby for the New York Times and trying to sort of gauge things. And it was during that that the um, distributors started bidding in the film because they saw that the, the critics seemed to like it. That's 
Vince and Gabby <coughs> loved it. It was great. And I mean, I think it's at the screening we got a standing ovation at, so that kind of sealed the deal. <laughs> well, that was actually that was actually the the first um, screening at New Directors after the reviews had come out, and the audience knew they were supposed to like it. So <laughs> I have a, dis, a, a distributor friend who says that like when they test indie films, like no one likes it. Like until a reviewer says you can like this film, no one likes it. Um, <clears throat> Like I don't actually watch movies. I just read the um, criticism. Yes, read the criticism, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's true of almost the entire world these days. <laughs> um, and what, um, you've continued in your work since Metropolitan to focus on, on youth, on young people. Um, I'm curious how your approach to that may have changed over time and whether you still look back to your own youth when, when dealing with these characters or you look to young people around you as inspiration. Well, it's mostly just, uh, you know, remembering um, those years. Um, I think it's interesting from a dramatic point of view because people are making their romantic choices. And if you're doing essentially romantic comedies, it's sort of, sort of original romantic choices. And I think it sort of stands in for romantic choices they might make later in life, too. All right. Um, to get back a little bit to this um, idea, I... I Forgive me if I'm obsessed with it, but I, I think it's interesting, especially since this film is being re-released now, the relationship between now and this time, which is a very particular time, if not exactly defined. And um, I'm wondering, the, well, one of my favorite parts of the film is um, the hilarious debate about the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie and the surrealists being all social climbers. And I think the film certainly you know, makes a case for the charm, the actual charm of the bourgeoisie. And uh, it seems interesting in a modern context where a lot of the wealthy people you see today are, you know, Kardashians or Donald Trump or things like this. Um, and the wealthy people we see depicted are more um, erudite and refined and, and actually self-aware, which just seems particularly um, unique. Um, <laughs> what do you think these people would think of today's wealth, today's depiction of, of, the, of class and a lot of these things? Because it's so explicitly and, and candidly addressed in the film. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that. I actually think it's the exact same. I think, I think they would feel very much like they're... In that, that uh, group of people, I think, would think that you know well, their wealth... That they, they, what is it that you don't, you don't get wealth, you have wealth. You know, it's it's, it c came from a, a long time ago, and and it's and there's it, not much left. And there's and <laughs> right. really not a lot left except for Sally, and um, uh, I think that you know it would be this the Kardashians and all the you know South, which actually you know, everybody could take a lesson from the from the entrepreneurship of of the Kardashians and like and. But Not I think everyone. It'd be pretty yeah. quick. I think it'd be pretty similar. The, their views on I, it. Um, I don't know about their views, but I think Charlie ends up like the guy in the bar, Roger, <laughs> who is 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 comfortable, but nevertheless feels awkward when he meets his old friends on the street when they ask him what he does for a living. I'm not sure what Charlie would do, but I think that was such a poignant I mean, scene. I don't, I don't think that all the characters would have been that especially prosperous in the film. So. The main girls who are debutantes, their parents haven't have enough money to pay for their tickets for the ball or whatever, whatever that is. Or maybe, I don't think anyone has a real, their own party in the movie. And then a lot of the guys can just be interlopers who have gotten access to a, uh, a tuxedo. And uh, the group I knew, there were a lot of sort of Columbia 
university types of, of all stripes who were going to those parties. So that's why it was sort of more literary and more, more talky. And you mentioned about thinking about where your character would be now, and, and you mentioned revisiting the film um, from the point of view of a parent. Um, do you think about where your characters would have gone or how they would have you know, I mean, been I at these different stages in life? <laughs> a very idealistic view, I think. <laughs> I mean, I think that you know, even Sally was allegedly the wild one, right? I don't th I think that she'd be... No, Cynthia. Yeah, but I was well, the one that always told the truth. That's what I was like, right. Cynthia. I, I believe that Sally would be bemoaning the Kardashians, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> and, um, you know, maybe tucked away in her Park Avenue apartment, hiding from the world. Uh, <laughs> maybe. Do you think about the characters in this way, Whit? Um, in which way? Like, do they, do they live on in your mind? Do you, do you picture where no. they might be later? No, I, no not, not really at all. Okay. I mean, we were thinking, Taylor and I were thinking of having the Charlie character um, be the teacher in Damsels in Distress. So um, Taylor was going to come and play the teacher. And it, originally, we were going to do sort of a version, and then I completely forgot all about it. And we just had, he was just <laughs> like a, a teacher in the school. Yeah. And, and I completely, you know, it was, it was six o'clock in the morning and not thinking properly. And, uh, and Taylor did a great job with Greta Gerwig, so it was fun getting them together. But the idea of keeping the Charlie character going sort of dropped there. We right. have them in the disco. Right. And that some Charlie um, and Ted are in disco. I think we have four because you were there. I'm not in it. Four, <laughs> four of the characters are in Last Days of the Disco. Right. And I do know um, a girl who was sort of the Cy Fowler character. She said, "Oh, when Dis when Sufi Four came, it was like dead parties all over again." Mm -hmm. And so that made sense to have some of those characters in in that disco. I, I do think that the characters are strong. I think I think Nick's a strong character. I think Charlie is a strong character. Ed. Tom certainly is, and I think those are just, and I think that's why you asked that question, is because they're such strong characters, you do think about where, where are they in, in 25 years. I mean, but on the other hand, when you write a story and the story comes to an end, sometimes the sort of, that really is the end. Well, in a sense, we did continue some things in Barcelona where you do have a little bit of the um, character you play and right. the character Chris Agron plays continuing as other characters in Barcelona. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned about the location and, yes. and shooting in New York, and you all were may, may not live in New York now, but you were from New York at the time, correct? So I'm, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that, about bringing New York to life in, Can this, I your location? in this way. Because one of the locations <laughs> was um, Dylan's father's house. Oh. Jane, the, the character of Jane. The Jane location. So it's the reverse of uh, the way it was in the film. Uh. Uh, and um, <clears throat> I think our rule was that we felt that we'd very likely be kicked out of any cooperative building when they saw <laughs> what we were doing. So we would allow ourselves to shoot like one day in a cooperative apartment building. And then we try to find um, townhouses that could look like apartment buildings. And so we had a big struggle not having any elevators. So people would be constantly going into closets and we'd have an <laughs> elevator sound. Yeah. Um, those were our <laughs> elevators. And, and one day we could actually have an right. elevator. Right, I forgot. Um, we kind sure. of blew that shot. But we were so excited to have, have an elevator, in, an actual elevator in the film. 
And, um, but we also but, stole lots of stuff. We we stole yeah. stuff on the street and lots. at melons and things like <laughs> that. You know, we got we we had to do the going away in the train, um, and we did um, two takes in Grand Central. That that's a funny story because Chris is walking away down the 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 ramp at at Grand Grand Central, and the cop is going stop stop, and Wit's going go go. <laughs> <laughs> So Chris just keeps walking. We tried to tell him we were doing a wedding video, but it didn't work. So we got kicked out after two takes there, and we just waited until later and shot the reverse angle in the Long Island Railroad Station. And we stole the plaza, right? We stole the front of the plaza. Well, that was legal in the sense that um, if you had you know, permits, you could shoot in the street. And it was our idea that the, car- you know, the actors had bought drinks at the Oak Bar and they were just walking out. And they, and just, they just walked through eight times, so... Yeah. There was a great, uh, I wasn't in it, but um, story about Chris, I think, or you, hailing a taxi. And we had That's a... That's Tom, yeah. Who's Brian? Yeah, oh, was right. it Brian? No, it's Brian. Tom, I thought. And we had a, 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 a prop taxi, but then a real taxi yeah. pulled up, and oh. someone was like, just take it. And, and he got in, right? And Brian Leader, uh, yeah. who plays Fred, uh, he was you know, feeling sick outside one of the parties, and they put him in a cab, but the wrong cab came up. And took him, and we could hear him in the radio mic saying, "I don't have any money. I don't have any money. I can't." <laughs> I'm doing a movie. Doing this a is movie. a costume, and it's a really ugly ad for Bally's Casino or something like that, yeah. which we right. try to have kept out of the movie. But there it is. Wow. Um, and it must have been. I mean, obviously, people still sh- still steal shots in New York all the time, but it must have been a lot harder with uh, well, how, how thing you were, were shooting. Where, where a, a young woman tried to grab our cab where we had our cab pulling up. Oh, yeah. That one's Tom. Two guys, yeah. Yeah. Take the two guys out to um, the Hamptons. The Hamptons. And she really wanted to fight for the cab. <laughs> <laughs> we were saying, no, no, you can't. This cab's not going anywhere. We're in- <laughs> well, and uh, also because we, it was in New York and then some of us lived in New York and my, my parents were there and we, we were all cold and I think it was my birthday and my mother came to the set to give us sweaters and birthday presents and then Wit saw her and was like, well, you should... Be oh, in this right, movie. Right. Yeah. You, stole Isabel, you stole Isabel's mother. We had a really hard time getting the adult characters, uh, the adult <laughs> actors, um, because we weren't SAG and um, we couldn't really do conventional casting. And so we did unconventional casting. But Isabel's mother, uh, Linda Gillies, came to set and Only got, roped in, in got roped in to be uh, Audrey's mother. Yep. At yeah. the opening of the, <clears throat> of the movie. the movie. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my whole family. My, par- my father's in the church scene, as is yeah, my well, brother. Yeah, well, then we had to have uh, your whole family come <laughs> with Carolyn for the uh, Christmas Eve scene. Christmas Eve. Well, I'm, I'm, there's so many stories, obviously. Yeah, I'm wondering if there's any really memorable day of shooting that you remember, whether because it was difficult or because everything just went right, if there's something like that that really sticks in your mind. For a few, I, I remember. I really enjoyed the the shooting at the Circuits Court building when we did Me the too. dance. Me too. That was beautiful. Oh, with the big party. We had a lot of friends who came, <coughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, we had three prop bottles of wine. We had three tables, you know, three tablecloths, and then we tried to make it seem like a big thing, just with three of everything. But the the contents of the three wine bottles disappeared really quickly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, huh. That's where we did the cha cha, right? Just no, no, we yeah. took the line. The line no, it's the conga line. The conga line. Because yeah. I remember. I remember and, 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 yeah. No, I loved that as well, but also I remember the other is when we did the cha cha. And that was the only thing that we actually had to rehearse, right? You brought in a, a, 
a dance teacher. Oh, really? Yes. And, <laughs> and poker. Us. You it taught us how to play, like not poker, um, bridge. bridge. You taught us how to play bridge. We None of us knew yeah. how to play bridge. No, we actually had a, a disaster with the bridge scene because um, it was the middle of the night in New York and we had all sort of, those of us who knew how to play bridge had kind of forgotten. <laughs> and um, Brian Greenbaum, the, line, the wonderful line producer, um, who was winging it a lot and did, doing miracles, um, we realized we didn't really know what we were doing, and everyone in New York was asleep. It was like 1 a.m. <clears throat> so he called up an aunt in Seattle. He was from <laughs> Seattle, and it was still like 10 there. And so we got the aunt in Seattle to tell us like how to bid and what to say and all that stuff. Yeah, they just say, okay, now say pass, and we'd be like, pass. <laughs> we had no idea what we were Call. doing. That, Call. That's actually in the movie, right? Yeah. Um, I love that green sweater. So um, you mentioned briefly about the characters coming back in uh, in Disco, and uh, you also worked with many of the same actors yes. um, across several films. Can you talk about what you like about that, what it, what it affords you, what it lets you do um, working with the same people across multiple films? If possible, um, I do it all the time because... Um, you know, you're, you already know the people, you know what they do, and you like them, and uh, it's just so much better than... Um, there's, a, there's a shorthand, I think, a little bit, when you work with someone more than once, and that's, that's nice for the actor, and I'm sure it's nice for the director, too, but... I also found it very helpful, um, for example, when um, Chris and Taylor were working on um, Barcelona, I knew very early that I wanted them to do those roles and they saw the scripts in very early stages and so as I was pressured to make them less verbose, uh, faster, shorter, the scripts, they would have read earlier drafts and they'd say, you know, this paragraph or sentence of this line from an earlier draft, you know, really was helpful for the character. Could, could we put that back in? And so they're sort of collaborators for that. And also on set sometimes, you make a low-budget film, you become just so obsessed with the production element of it. So Brian Greenbaum had to change one um, scene or more than one scene from, um, from Jane's apartment to Sally's apartment. We had more days than Sally's. And then there's something that didn't make any sense about uh, Dr. Wardell, Wardell Pomeroy's book about girls and sex. It's, it's uh, Nick Smith needling Jane about it, but we're in Sally's apartment, so why is he needling her? And the actor said, this doesn't make... I was going to change it, have him needle Sally about it. And then they came up to me and said, no, you can't change that because it's our backstory. You can't just <laughs> change the... And it was really true, and, and they just... Even though it made no sense why he's needling Jane when we're in Sally's apartment, the idea was that well, all the, all these girls are reading this book, or their parents are always giving the, giving this book. So somehow, no one's ever said it does make sense. It, it seems to make sense because the characters, the dynamic between the characters, makes sense. Were there were there many other examples of that where things had to change based on the the production and? and well, that was sort of horrible because we hadn't cleared the rights to the book, and we were calling the Kinsey Sex Institute in San Francisco trying to get the rights before we shot, but we couldn't. So we wrote fictional stuff on a fictional book and a fictional cover. Yeah, a, so we shot cover. it both, we shot everything both ways. <coughs> you see, if we couldn't get the permission, ultimately we would have it this way. And finally we got the permission. So it's Dr. Wardell Pomeroy, Girls and Sex. Um, I'm count myself as someone who discovered this movie, you know, later than when it came out, and I think it's amazing how much. Did you much get it because you're so young? Because of the dirty picture on the video box. No, 
I can't remember <laughs> why why I I can't remember why I watched it. But one of their disillusioning um, moments of adolescence, where they get this sexy looking. Um, <laughs> they film, made us do after the fact. <laughs> the, the sexy looking uh, film, and then they watch it, and there's this no real yes. nothing <laughs> to back it up. But w- that was because the, the the famous VHS box was because. Um, the video company releasing it had done a really, really salacious picture with models, and it looked really oh. like softcore. So I said, "Okay, we'll do what you want. We'll do the strip poker scene thing, but at least do it with our actors." So I think all you guys are in it, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's me and Isabel and you and I'm in it. Yeah, and Carolyn and Chris and Chris is in it. Oh yes, right, yeah. right, right, okay. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Carolyn is not in her bra. No, just me and his. But Dylan is. <laughs> well, hopefully that tricked a lot of teenagers into seeing this great film. Yeah. So. <laughs> but if he's asking you, is that how you came to it? No, I don't <laughs> think that was how I came to it. No, but um, but I sure. But when I did come to it, I mean, I immediately kind of connected with it very personally, and I think that even you know clearly today, when new people discover this on its 25th anniversary, young people will connect with this, and I'm wondering what you hope audiences take away from it today. You know and. Well, I hope they'll sort of see through the sociology. I mean, I think there's been a lot of talk about the sociology of the film and all that, and I don't think it matters after a certain, um, after a moment. I mean, yes, there haven't been that many things to try to document uh, folkways of debutante parties and all that, and, and that's sincere, and all the things that Charlie's saying about the decline of the bourgeoisie and all that. Downward social I mean, it mobility. Has some some interest, I guess. I don't but the think heart, that's why the film did well but the at heart, all. The heart, no, the heart of the film is something else. And I think it's sort of people finding their identities and their, their group. And um, so I think that, that it's something people have to sort of get through is the sort of exterior of the sociology. Well, and I've gotten, uh, you know, I don't know, responses from people that live all over the country. I have no idea what the that debutante scene in, in New York was. And by the way, I was never a debutante. Yeah. Um, uh, and it's just a love story. I mean, it's really a love story. And and that's what the, I think why people, why it struck a chord is because it's just about young kids figuring yeah. it out. And it doesn't matter what kind of kid you are. Um, and that is what I believe what was successful about the script from the minute that you read it was like, that's oh, this is just <coughs> kids. Figuring like, their way. It's like I say again. It's like I have I have very little objectivity about this. It's very hard for me to step outside and watch it objectively. But to me, it's it's just a great comedy. That's for me. Um, one thing that happened um, long after the film came out is when Amazon Studios was trying to sort of crowdsource um, films. They they wanted to have it sort of an open thing with filmmakers just making things and proposing them. They thought that they could. Um, they, they optioned uh, Metropolitan to use this as a template. So just take this to anyone and just use this, this sort of template of a group and all that. And it could be people in all different social situations. And they got in trouble with the, the Writers Guild or something like that. So they didn't go ahead with it. But it was, um, it, for me, it was very helpful because I started working with Amazon, which has been great. Um, but they saw that as saying it's sort of a, a story that could apply to all kinds of groups. Mm-hmm. And I, I just have to have one follow-up based on you were talking about reactions you got from all over the country. Have there been any really bizarre reactions or interpretations that people have had that you've heard of? Well, one obnoxious preppy type said, 
wasn't true at all. I never, I never heard people talk, talk about books that are deported. But my uh, my grandfather fired his grandfather, so it could have been residual bitterness. Oh. <laughs> I'm right. always amazed that people can can recite it. Lines from lines it. Yeah, from yeah. the movie, really yeah. quite dead on. And it took me a lot to memorize those <laughs> things. So it's I'm, easier for them. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much for coming and talking to us, and um, we look forward to the release. And yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Nick Kemp and Michael Oatmark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.com, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.com. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here. <laughs>